0: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the Law and the Prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. All right, well, thanks so much, Rachel. That's a good word for us this morning. Indeed, uh, we have a choice. We can live now in fear or in faith. And with all the ever-changing circumstances around us, uh, it, it is so easy to move to that, that fear uh, side. But we have a God who's in control. We have a God who loves us and who cares for us and who is going to walk with us through this. We will get through this, church. So thanks so much for joining us online this morning. Welcome to week two of our online experience. Um, I have to speak for all the leaders when I do say we miss you. <laughs> we desperately miss seeing you and being in person. Um, but thank the Lord for technology that we can even gather through, this, uh, through these online formats and be able to see each other's faces and see emotions. Um, so I hope if you're at home um, that you're enjoying this experience as well and uh, While this time is challenging for many, uh, we do hope that you take encouragement from the worship you've experienced already and the word that we're about to share this morning. Now, I wanted to try something new this morning, uh, which may have worked a little better if people were here in person, uh, but let's try it anyway. So hopefully at home you can help me out. Uh, we're continuing in our series on the book of Romans this morning, and we've come to Romans chapter 6, verses 15, and we're going to go all the way to chapter seven, verse six. And so I want to invite you to read these verses out loud with me. They'll be on the screen in front of you. So Romans 15: 15, 6:15, 15, let's start there. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness." I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies and she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ That you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your Word in challenging and scary times. And Lord, as there's uncertainty that's out there, as many of us are going to be spending a lot more time in our homes than we would like uh, nowadays, Lord, I pray that we would use this time to run to you, to know that you are the God who loves us, the God who is in control You're the God who died for us, Lord. So help us as we look at your word this morning to have fresh eyes, and may we leave this place encouraged for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a sinkhole? Now sinkholes, if you don't know, are cavities in the ground that form when water erodes an underlying rock layer. These are not common occurrences in New Jersey, but if you live in Florida, or if you're from Florida, around 650, I should say 6,500 rather, sinkhole insurance claims are processed per year. Now just imagine, cars are parked on a street day after day, and everything appears to be normal, but then one day the asphalt caves in and the cars disappear into a gigantic hole. Now imagine that happening in the NBC parking lot, right now. Uh, that's probably one thing we don't have to worry about right now. Here's the thing, though. Everybody says the hole came out of nowhere, but really they're wrong, right? The ground didn't just magically say, "I'm hungry," one day and decide to swallow up a car. No, no, no. The hole appears suddenly, but the process that led to it took many years. Right, The underground erosion was invisible, but it was there all along. Now, sinkholes, I think, remind us of two things. First, something can look good on the outside, while underneath there's major problems that have been going on for years, and really, disaster's about to happen. Now, second, our lives are affected by the little choices we make, which, which really have cumulative effects that can result in either, either moral strength or moral disaster. Now, in Romans chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, Paul is going to show us that sin in our lives leads to death, but righteousness leads to life. Every day, the little choices that we make show, show us where our allegiance lies, and if we're serving sin, if sin is our master, And if it is our master, don't be surprised if a sinkhole opens up one day and swallows us. Because here's the truth. All of us serve a master. And so Paul sets up a pretty clear dichotomy in this passage, either sin is your master or Jesus is your master. There's really no in-between. And it's, it's really interesting to me how often this, this occurs in the Bible, this kind of dichotomy that's there. In this uh, section of Scripture, Paul is saying we are all slaves, it's just a matter of whose slave we are. Now, if you're listening at home, and most of you are, uh, you may object to Paul's language here. You might say, well, how, how are we really slaves? And I want you to consider your life. What are the things that control you? Again, some of us listening at home are slaves to our work. Maybe we, we check our emails until the wee hours of the night hoping to feel productive, or in this season of our lives, maybe we're checking the, the news every five seconds, wondering what the, the latest update is on, on the current virus in our state. Some of us are slaves to our possessions. We, we believe that if we acquire more things, that is gonna, that's going to bring contentment in our lives. Others of us are enslaved to relationships where we're addicted to approval. And still others of us in our day and age are slaves of technology. Now, the whole point I think Paul is making here is famously summed up by St. Augustine, who says, we are slaves to the things we love. We are slaves to the things we love. And that's the same point Paul's making in Romans 6 and the beginning of Romans 7. And so in this passage, we're going to see that growth as a Christian must require us pursuing three goals. First, we must reorient our allegiance Second, we must surrender our affections, and finally, we must honor our true love. Now, if you remember from last week, uh, Paul began Romans chapter 6 by asking a question. He asked this question. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And in that verse, Paul is asking generally, if we are saved by grace alone, should we keep, from, should we, should we keep keep from sinning, right? Or should we keep sinning? Now remember Pastor Dave said that in Romans 6 to 8, Paul is, in all those chapters, Paul is moving us into a discussion on sanctification or how we grow as Christians. And a major part of growth as a Christian is how we fight against sin in our lives. And so in Romans 6.14, Paul ends that section that we looked at last week by telling us that sin is no longer our master were under grace he says this for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace now what does it mean to be under grace right it means that our motivation for living has changed the law points at our transgressions but it can't save us as we've already talked about in the book thus our motivation for obedience before was to justify ourselves. But now, because Jesus died for us, he justified us, and we can live a life of gratitude that leads to holiness. And so as we enter this next section of Romans, Paul anticipates an objection to this statement. And so in Romans six fifteen, Paul asks a similar but a different question from verse 1. He says this, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Now, notice the slight difference from verse 1. He says, if you're not under the law anymore, right, are we we obligated to live a holy life? That's what he's asking. So let me ask you, church, those of you watching at home, how would you answer this question that Paul is posing? Parents? (laughs) Parents? This may be a good discussion point at home with your kids, especially when they disobey you. Right? What do you do when your teenager says, Mom, Dad, huh, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, so chill out. Now speaking of teenagers, I vividly remember uh, being asked this question when I was a sophomore in high school during my geometry class. I got into this spiritual discussion with one of my classmates, his name was Nick. Uh, He was not a Christian, and he asked me, well, if you're saved by grace, doesn't that mean you can live however you want? And I remember, you know, exactly where I was sitting when he asked this question. And I remember thinking, well, this is a really heavy topic for geometry class. I mean, I'm trying to learn all about the Pythagorean theorem and things like that. And my gut wanted to say when he asked me, no, 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 you you can't live however you want. But in my youthful ignorance, I wasn't quite sure how to answer that and explain it to him. Now, since then, I've come to a greater understanding, and I hope to show you a bit about what I've learned today. Because after all, Paul does give the answer in verse 15. He says, by no means, right? By no means, may it never be. Freedom from the law is not license to sin. And so Paul's point in verse 15 is this. Christians are not free to sin. They are free from the power of sin. In other words, before you came to know Christ, you could only choose sin. However, after we surrender to Jesus and our hearts are regenerated, we have the power to resist sin in our lives. Now, how do we make sense of this? So Paul offers an explanation in verse 16. He goes on. He says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So now Paul, again, is starting to set up this dichotomy of masters. He says you're either, again, a slave to sin, or you're a slave to obedience. And so the illustration of slavery is is really a complicated one for our modern ears. So let me offer some cultural context about this. Right, The ancient Romans were well known for their slavery practices. And really there was two forms of slavery in the ancient Roman world. First, First, the first form involved the capture of an enemy. So if you capture an enemy, what you would do is you would destroy anything that might tempt them to return home. And then you would send him or her to Rome to be sold on the auction block. Now the second form, which was more common, was that of voluntary indenture. And what that meant is that people living in poverty at that time could offer themselves as slaves to someone with wealth, so they had a place to eat and sleep. Now notice, people willingly accepted this slavery to meet their basic needs. So do you see the difference here? Right, the second form is what Paul has in view here. And so he says, you have a voluntary choice whom you're going to obey, sin or Jesus. There's not a middle ground. We are mastered by what we choose to obey. So that, I think, begs a point of application. Christians display their love for Jesus by their obedience to him. Christians display their love for Jesus by their obedience to to him, In other words, Paul is emphasizing that life under grace is characterized by obedience, by submission to the will of God. In fact, I think this verse brings out echoes of chapter 5, verses 12 to 19, where Paul tells us that we've been transferred from Adam to Christ. We're now children of God. In fact, remember the, those two jars that Pastor Dave had up here the last two weeks talking about how we, once we were in Adam, but now we've been transferred to being in Christ if you're a Christian, now we're children of God. And now that we're children of God, we live differently. So let me ask you, does obedience to Jesus bring you joy or do you fight against it? Now I know a lot of people out there who love to break the rules for the sake of breaking the rules, but you have to ask yourself why. Like, have you ever asked yourself, if you're like that, Why? because it's evidence of a rebellious heart. But even more than that, I think many of us listening out there today are dealing with secret sins that that nobody knows about. And we think that we're hiding, but we enjoy what we do in the darkness. Maybe there's an addiction that we think isn't a big deal. Alcohol. Maybe you're drinking too much wine during this crisis. I see memes out there Maybe you're gambling or pornography or excessive online shopping, and and we justify each time we do it by saying, it's just one more time. In fact, the latest app developers know this slavery analogy to be true. How do Silicon Valley tech gurus design a successful app, you might ask? An app that will hook consumers and then keep them hooked so they keep coming back to that app. Well, some app designers call this process captology, or the art of capturing people's attention and making it hard for them to escape. And so one designer explained that applications like Facebook are so effective because a successful app creates a persistent routine or behavioral loop. The app both triggers a need and provides the momentary solution to it. So if you're feeling bored or lonely or frustrated... Fear not. Just log on to Facebook and you'll feel better. We become addicted. We fall in love with these technologies. Now let me speak to us, I think, where we're at right now, because we are living in an unparalleled moment in history. The fear and the anxiety are palpable in the air. People are concerned about their health. They're concerned about their, their jobs. They're concerned about staying in their homes now, their finances, their well being. Literally, literally, we can't leave our homes. But, but let me ask you this, or let me say this, I should say rather. This crisis, I think, is revealing where we truly place our trust. Our desperations are coming to the surface. So let me ask again, do you pray more than you check the news? And I'm preaching to myself here too. Do we read the Bible more than we scroll through Facebook? Because a moment of crisis will reveal the false gods that we are trusting in. Because don't you see in those actions you are showing that you are a slave to sin's mastery? You're a slave to what you love, and when you love sin more than Jesus, you will always pursue sin over Jesus. But when you love Jesus more than sin, you will love obedience. And obedience is what leads to righteousness. So I'll make a second and related, or I should say a third and related point of application. How you live matters. How you live matters. Because over and over again in chapter 6, Paul shows us again that sin leads to death. And he means eternal death and separation from God. Sin never leads anywhere good, friends. Instead, one day it's going to open up a sinkhole right under our feet. But righteousness is the opposite. It leads to eternal life. Through grace, we now have the power to fight sin, and our obedience is evidence of a changed life. See, verse 17 further explains this truth. Paul writes, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Thanks be to God that he has now claimed your allegiance. Now, this verse is very important, so let me, let me break it down. For us, because Paul in this one verse makes three key points. First, he says, God is worthy of praise. Why? Because he is the one who rescued us. He is the one who rescued us. He's the one who transferred us from Adam to Christ. He is the one who broke the power of sin in our lives. And and I think this is the tension that many of us feel out there, right? When we read Romans, the, the, the grace and the works tension. Again, obedience and a life of righteousness is something that we're called to pursue, but it is God who saved us and gave us that power over sin. So listen to this, church. Grace is not just forgiveness of sin. It involves the power to break sin's dominion. So turn to your family member at home and say, in Christ, sin's dominion is broken. In Christ, sin's dominion is broken. Now, say it again, because some of us, I think, don't believe that. Because the main point of verses 15 and 16 is this. If we are under grace, we will live in obedience to our new master, God, because we have been liberated from our old master, sin. But Paul doesn't stop there, right? He, he, He says a second thing. He says, your heart is now changed. And more specifically, he says, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that is now in your heart, right? Now, verse 17 is showing the reality of verses 15 and 16, that God is the one who has set us free and given us a new heart. Now, if you're an Old Testament scholar, you might remember that the prophet Jeremiah once said this. He said, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And what God was saying through Jeremiah was this. One day, I'm going to write the law on the heart of my people. And the law is not just a stone tablet engraving. No, no. It, it, it's, it's, he says, now it's going to be a way of life for my people. They will live in obedience because that is who they are. Now when Amanda and I were going to premarital counseling we discussed what the purpose of marriage was. And one of our counselors liked to use this phrase, marriage is for God's glory and our joy. Marriage marriage, he would say, first has the ability to show Christ's love to a watching world. And second, it can bring joy like no other relationship. Now, when I got married, I said to Amanda, I will forsake all others and I will give my heart to you. My heart will change. In fact, on my wedding ring, Amanda engraved that phrase for God's glory and our joy as a reminder to me of the commitment we were making. And what, what Jeremiah is saying is God does the same thing for us. The heart, our hearts are changed because we know that Jesus sets us free. And that's what leads us to the last thing Paul says. Now he's saying, you have to reorient your allegiance. Now think for a second about what it means to have allegiance to something. Right in school, you might say the pledge of allegiance to your country. People pledge allegiance to political parties or sports teams or fraternities or, or community organizations. But what Paul is saying here is this, once you had an allegiance to sin, but now your allegiance has been reoriented to Jesus. Your allegiance is to him, you are his slave, verse 18. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You see, when you become a Christian, everything changes. But change, for most people, is a long process where you have to root out sinful patterns. Battling our flesh is something we do every day. And so all of us watching at home have some sin we struggle with. Maybe it's it's pride or lust or, or greed. I mean, those often seem obvious. But all of us have something. In fact, if you're a newer believer, you might struggle with certain teachings. If you're an older believer, you might think you have it all together. But if you want to weed out sin in your life, ask yourself, what do I love more than Jesus? Where is my true allegiance? Who or what really is my master? Do you need a reoriented allegiance today? Because if you do, you need to experience the second stage of growing as a Christian, and that is surrender. We have to surrender our affections. Now, an affection is a disposition or a state of mind or body that's often associated with a feeling of a type of love. And so as a slave to sin, my affections are drawn toward sin. But when I surrender my affections to to Christ, my love is oriented toward him. And so in verse 19, Paul immediately acknowledges that the image of slavery is an odd one. He says this, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Now, initially, that verse sounds insulting, right? He says, I'm using this illustration because you can't understand otherwise. But a, good, but a good illustration has the power to make a very clear point. Slavery was part of everyday life in the Roman Empire, and the readers would have understood So he continues in verse 19. He says, Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Again, verse 19 is reiterating what Paul said in verses 15 to 18. We are slaves to what we love. And so to offer yourselves means to give over your whole body to a specific purpose. Before God came into our lives, we were stuck in a cycle of sin where our affections were oriented to another lover. Let me offer another illustration. I think as kids, we almost inevitably faced the same temptation at one point. Maybe this is true of some of you out there. The temptation was this, to slip our favorite candy bar into our pocket at the store without paying for it. It's so easy and harmless, right? And that's what Idris Allen, a 38-year-old New Jersey man, seemed to be thinking somewhat recently when he robbed the exact same 7-Eleven store at Knife Point four different times in four days just to avoid payment for candy. Right? It started on December 8th, 2015, and it escalated to the third heist on December the 11th consisting of several Reese's peanut butter cups. Now, I got to say, I love Reese's peanut butter cups. They are delicious, right? Some of you out there might be fans. Idris Allen really loved peanut butter cups. In fact, listen to what he did next. The newspaper records the fourth and final theft this way. It says, approximately 14 hours later on the same day, after he made a, a theft, the defendant wearing the same clothing from the robbery the night before, came back to the same 7-Eleven, went to the back of the store, took merchandise, and then left the store only to be followed by the shift manager from the first robbery. He jumped over the counter, he alerted the police, and he pointed him out around the corner. Allen pleaded guilty to first degree armed robbery on March 11, 2017. Now, you may be listening and say, that sounds like a ridiculous story. But i got to ask you, what is your Reese's Peanut Butter Cup? Right? What would make you go back to 7-Eleven four times and get caught? Now, in our former way of life, we're stuck in a cycle of wickedness and foolishness. We're, we're offering our bodies to sin and destruction. But now, God has set us free to live differently. Our affections have changed. Now we have a choice to live a holy life filled with righteousness. And so he continues to further explain this in verse 20. Paul writes, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. So now Paul's making an appeal through a question. He's saying, what about your former way of life? I mean, think about all the sins you have committed, the ones that brought guilt, the ones that hurt relationships, the ones that brought shame into your life. Paul looks us in the eye and says, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Those things result in death. In other words, the sinkhole is going to open up one day in your life. Now, in our modern world, people bristle at the idea of having to obey any kind of rules, even if they're good rules. So some out there might be saying, well, I want to be free to live however I want. If I want to sin, who are you to say that I can't? And the people who make that argument, I think at least in their heart, think that true freedom is found in licentious living. But they, what they don't realize, as we've already discussed in this passage, is that they are a slave to a different master. Tim Cowher says it this way. He says a Christian does not have to obey the Ten Commandments in order to be saved, but a Christian does have to obey the Ten Commandments in order to be free and thus a godly human being. So what does he mean by that? Well, being a slave to God is better than being a slave to sin slavery to sin opens the sinkhole in the ground but slavery to God opens up the blessing of heaven and and that's where Paul goes next verse 22 he says this but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life and there it is being a slave to God has its benefits holiness which leads to eternal life now, who wouldn't want that? Notice that Paul has the future in mind when he speaks of benefits. And I think this is really this is a, a difficult concept in our world because, frankly, many Christians, even many Christians, think about the here and now. People who are enslaved to sin often are focused on their immediate pleasure, the next high, the next vacation, the next bonus, the next encounter of whatever, but they're rarely focused on the long game. And right now, everyone is fixated on the immediate crisis of coronavirus. Life has quickly changed in very drastic ways. But listen to this, church. Christians should always have eternity in view because that changes our perspective, and when I have eternity in view, I can face anything that comes my way because I recognize this world is not there is. And so Christians don't run around and act like the sky is falling even though there's chaos in this world. We show the world that there's hope. We show the world that there's something different. And so let me just, let me just speak to us here, church. When crisis comes, Christians should not run around worrying. We know the end game. As believers... Are you as fearful as your non-believing friend? Or are you a source of faith in your community? Because when I have eternity in view, it changes my view of crisis. But it also changes my pursuit of holiness. Because I'm I'm living for eternity. In fact, I heard someone once say, life is short, eternity is long, live like it. And the benefit you reap of pursuing holiness now is that you get closer to Jesus. You get a a little slice of heaven here on earth. Additionally, growing in holiness means we are displaying the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And that means we're living in a way that we bless others. Who needs to be blessed in your life right now? But here's the theological question. Does eternal life require holiness? Again, it's not about works, but holiness displays a life that has been changed by the gospel. That it shows that you've been truly saved. And so Paul finishes verse chapter 6 with a very famous verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And while this verse is often used in the Romans' road to salvation as a way of explaining the gospel to non-believers, and that's true, right? In fact, if you're watching today and you don't believe in Jesus, hear this, the wages of sin is death. You can have all the Benjamins in the world, but it's not going to get you anywhere in eternity. It's the free gift of Jesus Christ that saves. So believe on him today. But I would also point out that Paul wrote this to encourage the sanctification of believers. That word wages denotes the payment a soldier receives. So the idea here is that sin, as the ruler, is paying its soldiers for their work. And along with this, uh, there is certainly the contrast that death is earned because of our sin, but eternal life is a gift we receive from God. So here's the point. And here's, the, here's, here's the, the, the main point. Eternal life inevitably involves good fruit and sanctification. So to answer the question that my friend Nick posed at the beginning, no, you can't live however you want. Your works don't save you. But someone who has been given the gift of eternal life will live like they have eternal life. Christian growth means surrendering your life. Affections. And so before we finish, there is one final element of sanctification I want to draw out. It's the Christians who grow in Christ likeness will ultimately honor their true love. They will honor their true love. Now, we, we said at the beginning of this message that we are slaves to the things we love. And interestingly, as we leave chapter 6 and get into chapter 7, Paul uses the illustration of marriage to reiterate his point. He says this, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? Now, the rest of chapter 7 is going to discuss the struggles we encounter with sin, a a war, if you will. Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7 are a, a hinge between Paul talking about our freedom from sin and the effect of sin in our personal lives. Pastor Dave's going to get into that next week. But he also returns to a point from earlier in the letter, the law. What role does the law play in our lives? What does it mean that the law has authority as long as a person lives? Now, some suggest here that Paul is switching his focus to a Jewish audience But the context doesn't necessitate that, that the Gentile believers in Rome would also be aware of Old Testament law, since it's clear that Paul is referring to the Mosaic law here. What role does the law play? Well, in verses 2 to 3, Paul gives the illustration of marriage, and I'm just going to summarize it for the sake of time. The, The argument in the illustration he gives is this. First, he says a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he's alive, okay? However, secondly, if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to her husband. In other words, she's free to remarry. But thirdly, and however, if she sleeps with another man while her husband is still alive, she's committed adultery. She has not honored her true love. Now you say, what's the point of that illustration? Look at verse 4. He says, so... My brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Okay. Now, I know that might be confusing, so let me explain. First, the body of Christ refers not to the church, but to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Second, with that in mind, Paul is, again, not saying that you're free to live however you want. No. Paul is saying that you are either married to the law or you are married to Christ. You can't be unmarried. Remember, he just said the same thing in chapter 6. You, you are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. There's no middle ground. And so the law only binds those who are alive. Death breaks the pe- Breaks the law's power. Therefore, we have been set free from the law because we died with Christ. Now, what does that mean? The bottom line of this passage is this. Becoming a Christian is a complete change of relationship and allegiance. Now we are united with Christ. We are, in a sense, married to Jesus, and we should want to honor him. Honor your true love. So then, since we are married to Jesus, we should want to please him because we love him. Again, we are slaves to whom we love. Verse 5 says this, "For, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. And again, as Pastor Day mentioned two weeks ago, the law can arouse sinful passion within us because we have a desire to break the law. But when we do so, we're slaves to sin, which leads to death. Instead, now that we are married to Christ, verse 6, but now, he says, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. When we are married to Christ, we are free to be a slave of righteousness. There's a parallel in in, in verses 5 and 6 to what, what Paul has been saying in chapter 6. But being released from the law doesn't mean we live however we want. Now, think about it this way. People will sometimes complain that when you get married, you lose your freedom. And frankly, that's true. Marriage entails a significant loss of freedom and independence. And when you have kids, it's even more so. You cannot live however you want. A married person cannot do that, but the benefit that marriage can offer is that you can experience unconditional love and intimacy and security and acceptance in this earthly life. Marriage is and can be a picture of our relationship with Christ. Now let me speak for the singles, to the singles out there for just a second, because I know when I mention marriage, you might tune out. But this applies to you also. Because you can't live however you want either. You may not have an earth, earthly partner, but if you're a Christian, you have been united to Jesus, and now He gives you all the love and acceptance and security you long for. Will you also honor your true love? Do you see the parallel here? The person who is a slave to sin thinks they're living however they want, but they're they're really obeying their master. The Christian who is a slave to righteousness may be a slave, but in that relationship they have love and acceptance and security, true freedom to live how Christ has designed them to live. So how do you grow in the Christian life? First, you have to reorient your allegiance Second, you surrender your affections, and finally, you honor your true love by fighting the sin that comes between you. Charles Swindoll offers a four-step process to fighting sin and fleeing temptation. He offers these four steps. He says, first, if we're going to fight sin, we have to flee temptation. Sometimes you have to physically change your circumstances or move away from a situation that causes you to sin. Maybe there's a certain place that makes you more prone to temptation. Don't go there. Fleeing that temptation will help you fight your rela- for your relationship with Jesus. Secondly, choose an alternative. Do something that honors God when you're tempted to sin. Choose to do the opposite. Pray. Read the Bible. Call up a good friend. Third, he says, thank God. Thank God for giving you the ability to choose not to sin. Before you were a Christian, you could only choose to sin. Now you have the ability to resist. And finally, he says, discern the trigger. Because many of us have triggers that cause us to sin. What are those? As we figure out those triggers, we can more accurately resist the sin that comes into our lives and comes between us and our true love, Jesus Christ. When we resist sin, we will bear fruit, and not fruit that leads to death, but fruit that leads to life. So I want you, as we close here today, to discuss this with your family and friends this week. How can we bear fruit during the time of the coronavirus? Because right now everyone's in close quarters, and perhaps tensions are getting hot. Maybe there's angrier conversations than usual. Maybe you're feeling lonely and depressed. What would it look like for you to bear fruit now? And so I want to challenge you again. Pastor Dave and I mentioned this earlier this week, but this is a time to connect with people in different ways and do it more often. Over the phone, maybe through video chat. Don't stop meeting with people even if it's virtually. Confess sin. Encourage one another. Display the fruit of the Spirit As we show a watching world what it means to live differently. Reorient our allegiance, surrender our affections, honor our true love, and it's then that God gets the glory. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up for one final song, and as they're coming up, let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, again, we know it's a challenging time, Lord, we know that people are anxious and they're scared and they're not sure what's going to come next. And Lord, even in the midst of Romans, help us to know that you're the God who knows the end. And the end for us as Christians, we know is eternal life. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, Lord. Help us to have the long game in view. Help us to tell that to others. Help us Lord, help us to be bold proclaimers of your gospel even in the midst of crisis, Lord. Help us to show your love and display your love in a time of uncertainty. We give ourselves to you. We put our trust in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.